0: Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the October 9th, 2018 edition of Ask a Leader. Early voting in California began yesterday, 27 days till the midterm elections. Anyone you know in Florida, make that anyone you know needs to register and get their confirmation. Florida's deadline is today. And it looks like I'm seeing on the Twitter sphere that the, I think think it was Mississippi, there's a, like 50% of the registered voters' paperwork's been dumped. So everybody, you've got to confirm that. So uh, if anybody had a chance to hear the California governor debate yesterday, it's the only one between John Cox and Gavin Newsom. It was uh, pretty revealing. Today, for our show, Jennifer Coe, immigration attorney and professor at Western State College of Law, will take up Irvine Mayor Don Wagner's resolution opposing SB 54, the California Values Act, also known as the Sanctuary State Bill. Postponed, the resolution is once again on the City Council agenda the same day as this show. Right now, if you're listening live, it's Tuesday, October 9th. The legal and political implications of this resolution will be considered on the show today. In the second segment, Mike Levin, congressional candidate in California's 49th district, spanning Southern Orange County and Northern San Diego County, will talk policy above and beyond all that horse races everybody else is covering. We'll be right back after a short station break. Welcome back to the show. My guest for the first segment is Jennifer Coe, here to take up what Mayor Don Wagner is cooking up during red meat season, his resolution to oppose California Senate Bill 54, the State Sanctuary Bill. Jennifer Coe is a professor of law and director of the immigration clinic at Western State College of Law. The clinic provides pro bono legal representation to low-income non-citizens in Orange County, including people detained in Orange County immigration detention facilities. Her legal scholarship focuses on federal immigration enforcement and the intersection of criminal and immigration laws, and she appears in journals such as Washington University Law Review, Southern California Law Review, Wisconsin Law Review, North Carolina Law Review, Florida Law Review, and Georgetown Immigration Law Journal. Her scholarship's been cited by the United States Supreme Court in Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's majority opinion in Malouli v. Lynch, a 2015 case involving a lawful permanent resident who faced deportation after being convicted of possession of drugs, drug paraphernalia, after being found with Adderall in his sock. And by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Jennifer Coe is also the president of the Board of Directors of the Orange County Justice Fund, a new nonprofit organization devoted to supporting legal representation for detained immigrants and developing financial resources so necessary for immigrants that can be released from immigration detention. Before moving to OC, Jennifer co-taught in the Immigrants' Rights Clinic at Stanford Law School, clerked for the Honorable Eugene Nickerson in the Eastern District of New York, directed a community lawyering project at the New York's city based domestic violence nonprofit Sanctuary for Families and was an associate in the litigation department of the law firm Wilmer Hale. Jennifer co earned her Bachelor's of Arts from Yale University and her law degree from Columbia Law School. Having appeared at the earlier city council forums last month, she provides us a legal analysis of Mayor Wagner's gesture in advance of tonight's. City Council meeting to rehear the resolution. She comes to us today from her Irvine office. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Jennifer
1: Coe. Thanks, Claudia, for having me this morning.
0: Well, um, I've got to sort of warm everybody up. In the beginning, uh, you know, there were, uh, you know, Europeans landing on the already settled uh, North American continent. And I've been, I've just been musing about what the narrative would be like if we were to consider what documentation early and later Europeans brought along with them. So we'll fast forward to travel bans and venal immigration policy. Thank you, Stephen Miller. The California state legislature adopting SB 54. So last spring, then we'll fast forward all the way to last spring, Orange County and the Southland had lots of drama and not so much nuance and literacy here about what was involved with law enforcement mechanisms that SB 54 was taking up. And I covered this with Elisa Viejo City Council candidate Tiffany Ackley, and she's she's also an environmental attorney. The dust subsided a bit, and then The mayor of the the Valiso, who was running as uh, Orange County Sheriff, his bid for sheriff, was unsuccessful, passing the, the primary. Then on September 25th, Mayor Wagner scheduled and withdrew and postponed a hearing of his resolution regarding opposing Senate Bill 54. So, Jennifer Coe, talk about what you first read in that document, the tone and the content
1: Sure. So a couple of weeks ago, um, Irvine Mayor Wagner asked that the city council put discussion of SB 54 on the agenda. And as part of that request, he attached a short two-page memo describing some of his reasons for believing um, that the city of Irvine should get involved in this discussion. Um, So quite frankly, I was surprised and disappointed when I read the actual content of the memo. I was hoping that there might be some kind of Um, rational, even keeled question that would be raised, but instead the memo really came from the sentiment of other Orange County cities who have been um, supported in part by this anti-immigrant organization that's been classified as a hate group called the Federation for American Immigration Reform. Yes, FAIR. And so what Mayor Wagner's memo does is it essentially um, misstates the law, both in terms of constitutional law, the law in terms of what SB 54 actually does. It relies on um, incorrect factual assumptions about the relationship between immigrants and crime and public safety, and what it does is instead tries to whip up unfounded public fears of um, what immigrants um, mean in Irvine and how the police should be doing their job. So really on every front, on law, on fact, and on discourse, um, to me the memo was a disappointment. And it didn't really reflect the values of a city like Irvine, which is a diverse city, it's a safe city, one of the safest cities in the country, in fact, and also a place that very much celebrates and values its diverse communities.
0: Well, he also, like you, he is an attorney. Does it surprise you an attorney would lift so much of a, an organizational template with the kind of literacy wanting in his document?
1: I mean, not terribly. There's certainly amongst the bar um, all kinds of all kinds of attorneys out there, um, and it seems that first and foremost, he's a politician who is using this. Um, Polarizing issue is an opportunity for political gain. So it's not terribly surprising. It's sort of a a play from um, Attorney General Jeff Sessions and the Trump administration, which is to throw around terms like Constitution, to throw around terms like Supremacy Clause and Public Safety, but not really give nuance to what they actually mean.
0: Well, as was mentioned at the hearing last uh, September 25th, there there was a lot of irony about the tone of this resolution and being on the sort of the heels of a recent you know the global village celebration of diversity in the city it's just seemed tone deaf that there what makes irvine great is sort of getting all
1: rolled back in this template that belongs some some other galaxy Right. I mean, it was definitely a disappointment to hear that this was back on the agenda. And to be clear, it's not really clear precisely what the mayor is asking for. It sounds like he wants the city to do something to express its opposition to the California Values Act, and you know, in terms of what other Orange County cities have done, um, it's really run the gamut. It could it it, it it could be anything from adopting some kind of symbolic resolution to actually trying to depart ways from the state to filing an amicus brief that, that was previously um, given the federal the federal government's litigation against the state of California. It's not really clear exactly what he's trying to ask. Um, the city to do. But, you know, I will say I thought the last council meeting was really quite moving and powerful. Almost 30 community members um, came out during public comment and spoke articulately and passionately and beautifully, urging the city just simply not to get itself into this discussion again. Um, We've seen what happened in Orange County cities when the SB54 issue was brought up. And there was essentially what people have called a hate circus. Um, There were out-of-towners coming in, bused in. um, Out-of-staters. Yeah, out-of-staters. Um, Many of the people of color, as well as other allies, felt really personally attacked. I heard so many stories of racial epithets being thrown around, um, you know, in the corridors of those city council meetings. And what so many people were asking the council to do is just simply let Irvine be Irvine and not kind of invite this kind of spectacle. And I thought council member Melissa Fox really said it quite well. She said, you know, Irvine doesn't need the spectacle of divisiveness. Um, I was really moved, actually, by uh, the comments, and they came from young people and more mature members of the community, people I'd never seen before, um, and especially really the energy of the young people who spoke that night was, was moving. It was hopeful, and it gave one a sense of where Irvine really is going um, and that meeting had that meeting had happened with just two or three days notice that it was even on the agenda but organically that was the response 100% opposition to the city getting involved in SB 54 so
0: and so was the effort to reschedule a way of trying to bring uh, out the, the the marauding crowds that wanted to uh, support mayor Wagner's resolution
1: So I don't know, and I don't really want to speculate. Um, I think one council person um, was absent from the meeting, so I don't know if that had something to do with the reason um, for the measure being uh, postponed. Um, But uh, the deferral of the matter was announced before the council meeting had even started, Um, so there must have been some kind of some some kind of rationale behind it. Again, it was truly disappointing to hear that after the very strong public commentary um, against discussing the measure that the mayor still wants to bring this back again, but um, So this is where we are, Um, you know, and I very much hope that residents of the city and others who work and live in and interact with the city of Irvine will come tonight to express their concerns um, about what the mayor is trying to do.
0: And for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Jennifer Coe. She's an immigration attorney and faculty member of Western State College of Law, talking about Irvine Mayor Don Wagner's resolution to be taken up this evening about the city's disposition toward California Senate Bill 54, the California Values Act, known also as the Sanctuary Bill. So the relationship in your piece that you contribute on September 25th, you talked about the relationship of immigration to crime. Could you, we've we've talked a little bit about that on this particular program. Could you talk to, to some of those points that you brought to the mayor on the 25th? Yeah,
1: so, I mean, I think if you listen to this administration, um, one would think that, you know, our, our, our safety day-to-day is being threatened by immigrants with criminal records and whatnot, and um, this administration, the Trump administration, would make you think that um, somehow increased immigration is linked to increased crime rates. Now, I haven't done these studies, but others who actually have been able to crunch numbers and do um, empirical research have. And in study after study, um, it's been shown that um, foreign-born immigrants are actually not more likely to commit crimes. In fact, Native-born Americans um, have... uh, Um, are more inclined to actually commit crimes. There have been some studies recently showing that sanctuary cities have um, demonstrated decreased crime rates. So I think the empirical data and the research is out there to say, look, um, more immigrants does not equal more crime. But I think there's a second piece of it. And this is what the mayor is trying to do is say that, look, Immigration enforcement is part of crime control. That's what he's trying to say, right? He says things like criminals responsible for violent and heinous crimes, blah, 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 blah. Um, Now, the sanctuary law, SB 54, in California is actually pretty limited. And this is where it's frustrating to see the mayor actually get the state law wrong. Under SB 54, um, local law enforcement actually does have permission to communicate with ICE if people have been convicted of serious felonies, violent felonies, and a whole laundry list of other um, criminal code citations. I think at the end of the day, it adds up to like seven to 800 actual criminal statutes where if a person has that conviction, then um, they act, then local law enforcement actually can... Uh, refer them to ICE. So what does SB 54 do? Well, it stops law enforcement from using its resources on on immigration, and it specifically says if a person does not have one of these more serious or articulated crimes, then that's the situation in which a person can't be handed over to ICE. And so what the mayor is really trying to do is say, what we really want is for the people who have the least serious convictions, maybe even people who are found factually innocent, for people who had some reason to interface with the police or the criminal justice system. Those are the people that I think that the mayor thinks should actually be referred to this whole immigration detention and deportation system. And it's a deportation and immigration detention system that very much destroys lives, separates families, disrupts communities, and whatnot. And And so that's like a fundamental misunderstanding with what's going on with SB 54 as well as what's going on with these cities that are throwing around terms like public safety and criminals and whatnot as a justification for this. It's not about public safety. This isn't doing something exempting Irvine from the California Values Act will do nothing to increase public safety. If anything, it could increase fear amongst immigrants who are witnesses to crime and who are victims of crime. And I think we want people who um, experience criminal activity or witness criminal activity to be able to trust the police. So if it's not about public safety, then I think it raises a more fundamental question is, well, what is this about? And in America right now, um, it is politically beneficial, and it promotes the personal political careers often to scapegoat immigrants um, and to throw around words like sanctuary cities um, or crime. And so it seems to me that that may be part of what's going on here.
0: So do you happen to know what police chief? Hamill's disposition is. And could you, if you're not clear on that, though, this could you talk to how this compromises the chain of command between the mayor and his police chief?
1: Right. I mean, so I think at this point, it's it would depend in terms of, so one, I, I don't really want to speculate on the police chief's views on this matter Um, and in terms of the relationship between the mayor and the police chief it would really depend on what ultimately is decided you know hopefully the city council meeting will happen tonight hopefully the rest of the council will vote sensibly and will vote not to continue any further discussion on this Um, or if for example the measure is more symbolic then you know hopefully it may have some kind of minimal impact Um, I think the broader question is also So, you know, once the leadership of the city starts to signal to line police officers that it is appropriate to ask people about immigration status and to start, you know, thinking about that as opposed to actually keeping the streets safe, you know, keeping traffic under control, responding to complaints and whatnot, then it has the potential to change the culture of the police department. Um, We already know that America is in a very difficult and painful moment right now with respect to how we police, how police force is used, how policing resources are used. And um, it's not always possible to control exactly what the line officer does. That's why institutional culture matters so much. That's why it matters so much what line police, um, how they understand their jobs, and so um, this certainly has the potential to undermine um, effective and safe policing in Irvine, and that's especially going to impact people of color and people who are perceived as being members of immigrant communities or people who actually are immigrants and undocumented immigrants.
0: And this intangible that you're talking about, Jennifer, it's something that's really broadly benefiting everybody. Correct. I'm sorry. This um... this intangible of a greater security with a sort of enlightened community policing practice. Sure. It everybody yeah. benefits from that. It just it just lifts. It's. The kind of uh, water lifting all the boats around Irvine's
1: Right. I mean, and I, you know, so I, I understand that immigration is a complicated topic. What <laughs> to do with, um, you know, people who are living in the United States who don't have immigration status, how to control the borders, how many visas to allocate, those are hard topics. But when it comes to actually um, running a community and running a city, I think you're right. I think having a police force, having law enforcement who everybody trusts, and who people believe are going to police fairly um, to um, not single out certain civil violations as somehow worse than any others. you know those are all things that harm all of us and ultimately again make our communities less safe make our communities more divisive than they already need to be in this pol- particular political climate and so I would hope that the city would do the kinds of things that it's done in the past you know celebrate things like the Irvine Global Village Festival um, and be a community where lots of diverse families and communities can thrive and eat great food um, and speak their languages Um, And that takes effort sometimes. So to do something affirmatively that's going to bring divisiveness, that's going to invite racial polarization, that seems entirely counterproductive.
0: Well, it's my side of the conversation that I'm, I'm not putting you on the spot, but from my taking in old footage of when Don Wagner used to serve on the community college board, those these kinds of gestures were kind of his standard bearer he was a standard bearer in in providing that kind of thing so it's sort of like there was this slow moving inevitability toward this kind of a gesture here in the city of irvine tone deaf to what's going on around him so it's i and he's now running for mayor one more time and so who do you see let's just let's envision his resolution it's don wagner dancing on the floor, dance floor, and he's looking over his partner's shoulder. Who's he looking at, Jennifer?
1: You know, I mean, I think there are people in the community who, I mean, obviously, so Irvine is an interesting place um, where, you know, I think something like a little less than half of the city voted for um, Trump in the election. Um, Orange County right, is a place where the KKK at once thrived. That was the home, um, sort of the birthplace of Proposition 187 um, several decades ago. And so there certainly are people, I think, who probably um, you know, are happy to um, see mass deportations and to, who are frustrated that Irvine has become, I think, probably too diverse. Um, so I would imagine that there are, you know, there are certainly folks out there who would be supportive of his message. I'm not saying that he's completely out of touch with all of Orange County, um, but I think the majority actually um, values diversity more than he thinks it does. Well, there
0: is some speculation in the the, the casual blogosphere that that he is signaling an, it sort of a little bit broader uh, jurisdiction that maybe he's interested in running for the – the county board of supervisors seat that could be vacated in the next 2 years so uh, that's one dance partner some of us are looking at there so sure. well how did you feel that your statements on the 25th were received did, what what did you take in from your own contribution
1: yeah i mean i think the irvine city council members overall are um Um, You know, respectful professionals, people made eye contact. I got the sense that the city council members were actually listening. Um, No one was rolling their eyes or um, (laughs) shutting out the speakers. You know, I don't know how the comments were received at the end of the day. I think um, the discussion and any vote that might take place tonight will um, demonstrate ultimately how the comments were received. Again, I mean, I think that my comments were not at all the most powerful ones of the evening, though. There were so many just heartfelt, um, spontaneous um Speeches made by younger members of the community, um, as well as older members of the community, people who aren't necessarily thinking about immigration enforcement on a day-to-day level, who I actually thought were far more effective um, and eloquent um, with their remarks. So you know, my hope is that the city council will take what they have um, and really reflect on it and digest it um, and take that as a signal of where the future of the city is.
0: So how would you recommend people step up in this case? I, I can mention it's an it's agenda item 4.1 on tonight's city council business. There's going to be other agenda items. Obviously, number four is, is, is down sure. the list. So what do you expect is going to take place? What do you, how will you want to equip listeners to uh, put their best foot forward in a, a forum such as this one?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would encourage people to certainly show up at tonight's meeting, um, probably to show up around 5 o'clock at the Irvine City Council, I think to connect with some of the organizations that are um, helping to mobilize community members. The Korean Resource Center is, um, I think, launching a caravan at from 4 o'clock from the UCI campus, um, and other community leaders are also, you know, making efforts to, Um, to get people out there. I think it's helpful to do a little bit of, you know, for people who aren't familiar with SB 54, just to do a little bit of reading um, and learning. Um, Also to learn about the connection to uh, the hate group fair that has been documented um, in the other Orange County cities. And to not be afraid to put your name on there for public comment. when does it need to be an immigration expert? When does it need to be a lawyer? Um, because everyone, people know what their ultimate values are. And um, and so I hope that, you know, even folks who have not been involved in the political conversation so far will see how this could affect their immediate community and their leaders um, and will make decisions accordingly. You know, there's also obviously an election coming up. Um, Every Irvine resident gets to vote for two people for the new city council as well as for the mayor. And so um, it's easy to kind of overlook the local elections and um, not do one's research. But I definitely encourage people to think hard about who they'll vote for, um, both for the mayor as well as for the city council seats.
0: On the dais, though, there is effectively only one person up for election of the five
1: oh okay yeah you i, I defer to your knowledge no
0: no it's, it's it's not i'm not trying to correct i'm just that so it's right. the vote doesn't it's not any sort of political campaign sensitivity they can just vote with some purity here. sure <laughs> if, yeah if, if one yeah. considers elections don't make one pure yeah uh-huh. and, and i guess the the last meeting, and perhaps this one, too, depending on who turns out. It's a lot less fraught than the one I witnessed in Elisa Viejo. The fair people were live streaming on their Facebook accounts and sweeping Correct. that room, and all of us were swept in there. So it was that wasn't happening on the 25th in Irvine, and hopefully that extra scrutiny, um, unwarranted scrutiny, is not a part of the forum tonight. So
1: I very much hope so. Um, I'm sort of, uh, you know, preparing for the worst case possibility. Um, I think that could happen. I think that'll be destructive. I think that'll be a sad day for the city, but I won't be terribly shocked if that happens.
0: Well, Jennifer Coe, I want to thank you for taking the time today to be covering what's going on and, and presenting your case and how we can make our case to uh, the, the mayor of, of Irvine.
1: Well, thank you for having me. My guest
0: is Jennifer. She was Jennifer Coe, immigration attorney and faculty member at the Western State College at of Law, talking about Irvine Mayor Don Wagner's resolution about the city's disposition toward California's Senate Bill 54. On the agenda tonight, Irvine City Council. After a short break... We'll have on Mike Levin, congressional candidate in California's 49th district, spanning southern Orange County and northern San Diego County. Be right back. Classic Charlie Hayden's Liberation Music Orchestra, Amazing Grace. Thank you for staying tuned, everybody. My next guest is Michael Levin, congressional candidate in California's 49th District, which spans southern Orange County and northern San Diego County. Mike Levin is a product of South Orange County, finished high school in Los Angeles at Loyola High, then completed his undergraduate degree at Stanford University. After college, Mike Levin served in the Coral Fellows Program Leadership Training Grounds. He completed his law degree at Duke University. After law school, he served as Executive Director of the Democratic Party of Orange County and as an attorney has focused on environmental and energy regulatory compliance and governmental affairs. He served for several years on the board of the Center for Sustainable Energy, based in San Diego, and co-founded Sustain OC in Orange County, which we've covered in several ways on this show. For Mike Levin's work in clean energy, he was named the Orange County Metro 40 Under 40. I've invited his opponent, Republican candidate for the 49th Congressional District, Diane Harkey, to appear on this program. Her campaign has not yet responded. Mike comes to us today from San Juan Capistrano. Welcome to Ask a
2: Leader, Mike Levin. Thank you so much for having me. I'm pleased to be with you.
0: Well, it, we're we're glad to hear from congressional candidates, especially what, uh, all the the national media. Maybe we'll throw in the international result, looking over our shoulder and seeing what's going on. <laughs> well, so let's let's begin with the Affordable Care Act that's been gradually yep. whittled away. Under Paul Ryan's leadership in the House of Representatives, what is the health care package that you would advance in the
2: House? Well, we've already got uh, the Affordable Care Act. That's the law of the land today. And I think the first order of business uh, is to protect it. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, this administration has been uh, trying to, both in the uh, legislative process as well as through the court system undermine uh, the, uh, the, the uh, architecture of the ACA to make it unaffordable or to uh, limit access. And that's particularly uh, troubling what's happening now in the court system, the case in Texas where 20 states have gotten together to try to challenge uh, the ability to cover those with pre-existing conditions and then, of course, we had the uh, elimination of the individual mandate, which I did not support uh, because you need it in order to make the, uh, the other legs of the stool stand up, uh, you know, to, to make the overall ACA affordable and accessible. And while it's not perfect, it has had great impact in my district, in the 49th district. Uh, the uninsured rate prior to the ACA was around 15 percent. And subsequent to the ACA, it's around 6.4 percent. But I do worry that the, uh, you know, attempts to destabilize the exchanges are going to lead to much higher costs next year. The estimates that I recently saw suggest that uh, the average family of four on the exchanges in the 49th district will have their out-of-pocket uh, expenses go up by about $2,700 next year. Wow. And, uh, you know, really at the at the top of my mind is, ensuring that we continue to protect those with pre-existing conditions and cover those with pre-existing conditions. 27% of Americans under 65 have a pre-existing condition, and 42% of those between 50 and 64 years old have a pre-existing condition. And the Republicans would make it extremely unaffordable uh, to cover those folks. I think we need to do the opposite uh, with the 50 to 64 age group, I think we need to explore options, whether it be early buy-in to Medicare to, uh, or, or another uh, option to, to try to reduce costs for people in that 50 to 64 bracket as they are trying to uh, approach uh, retirement and trying to retire with dignity. I think it is a, a moral issue. Uh, I think that you know ultimately health care is a human right, and we've got to do everything we can. And I hope Democrats, if we're so fortunate to retake the House— Uh, can fight very hard to protect the Affordable Care Act and continue to expand and improve care and access for everyone.
0: So, Mike Levin, what would be different? Let's say you're you win the election, but you're in the minority party versus you're in the majority party. How far you can get (laughs) with that?
2: Well, I don't even like to think about that because it, it really is a matter of playing offense versus playing defense. And, you know, right now, Democrats in Congress are playing a lot of defense. We're trying to prevent uh, this administration from further eroding a variety of our, our laws out there, a lot of basic health and safety, health care. Uh, I think about the environment a lot because it's my background as an environmental yes. attorney. Uh, we're, we're playing a lot of defense to try to protect our air and our water quality. On the other hand, if we took back the House and maybe even the Senate, you never know. We've got some great candidates out there running for, uh, for Senate. If we were to retake the House and not the Senate, I think we could play some offense. We could work with, uh, hopefully, some more open-minded Republicans on areas of mutual concern. But if we were to retake the House and the Senate, then we would, you know, definitely have a lot of uh, bills on uh, Trump's desk, and then it would be up to him to sign or veto uh, those uh, those bills. But I, I do think there are areas that we can work together on. Uh, we have to work together on things like infrastructure. Uh, on things like basic health and safety for the environment. Uh, I don't think those are partisan concerns, and I know that uh, uh, most Americans want to see great infrastructure and they want to see a clean environment. We've just got to... uh, Uh, get through the toxic rhetoric of Washington and try to get things done and begin to solve problems rather than create more of them.
0: Well, taking that environmental segue, I want to bring up, given that the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change's findings that are moving out this week, that the increase in the worldwide temperature is, that it would be a full 1.5 degree centigrade from the pre-industrial levels, what, Mike Levin, What incentives would you legislate in the House to step up the American response to climate change?
2: Well, you know, we were on the right path before the Trump administration. And, you know, I started the campaign by sending Daryl Issa and and for your listeners. I I, uh, am running in a district that has been represented by Daryl Issa for the last 18 years. He decided uh, to retire back in uh, January of this year. Uh, so now I'm running against his handpicked successor, uh, Miss Harkey. Uh, but uh, when the campaign started, I sent Isa the book "Climate Change for Beginners." It's a uh, an illustrated 180-page book written at about a sixth-grade reading level, and it actually is written by a PhD. And <laughs> I sent it, you know, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but. Uh yeah. it's so overwhelmingly obvious to anyone that has studied the science, and the IPCC report that you're referring to is just the latest example, that we've got to take action. And my opponent, Ms. Harkey, goes by, you know, she goes, she toes the line and says, we are not, you know, I am not a scientist and we can't, you know, definitively conclude what's happening. Well, yeah, we can. And, and scientists uh, have been uh, extremely confident in the assessment uh, now for decades. Uh, And my belief is that as members of Congress, we don't have the luxury of being so uninformed where we're allowing a handful of oil companies and special interests to determine our climate policy and our energy policy. And we have led the way in California. I'm so proud for many reasons to be a Californian, but one of those is that we have led the way on sustainability and on clean energy policy. And I've been working with those uh, to to get those policies put in place now for over a decade. And we've done a great deal to reduce our greenhouse gas footprint, but also at the same time we've grown the jobs of the future in clean energy. Never let anyone tell you that you cannot protect the environment and grow the economy at the same time because we've done it in California. And what I want to see is that California – Uh, innovation and ingenuity at the federal level. I think we need to explore uh, a number of policies, see what we can pass, whether it's a uh, revenue-neutral fee on carbon, whether it's a cap-and-trade system, uh, whether it's uh, a renewable portfolio standard, uh, which uh, sets a baseline for renewable power, uh, whether it's a nationwide commitment to building electric vehicle charging infrastructure, Uh, or to uh, have uh, better energy efficiency standards. All of these are things that we can do, things that should not be partisan. And I have to remind your audience that when the Environmental Protection Agency was created, Richard Nixon was the president, and the Clean Air Act passed with the overwhelming uh, support of Republicans and Democrats. Uh, Then when California decided that we needed a waiver under the Federal Clean Air Act to go even further to reduce emissions from cars, Ronald Reagan was the governor. So You had Richard Nixon, you had Ronald Reagan. These are not exactly, you know, the, the top heroes of the Sierra Club. But they knew just then as now that clean air, clean water, these are not partisan issues. We all breathe the same air. We all drink the same water. We've got to protect our planet. And, you know, when you combine our uh, abdication Uh, of our responsibility under the Paris Climate Accord with now what I feel is a very irresponsible policy from the EPA. This EPA doesn't even believe in environmental protection. They want to bring back asbestos, mercury, lead paint, uh, toxic chemicals, pesticides that have been banned for decades, uh, and uh, even radiation the other day. We need to do everything we can to stand up for our environment again. I'm honored to be running for Congress in part. Uh, as a clean energy advocate who's going to try to protect our planet.
0: So for those of you who just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader. My guest is Mike Levin, congressional candidate in California's 49th congressional district spanning southern Orange County and northern San Diego County. That's Dana Point to La Jolla, more or less. This is a closely watched race nationally, and it is a seat that Daryl Issa is vacating after serving nine terms. I'm counting up there. So um, <laughs> I won't add on to that because we have a lot of other uh, topics here in the time remaining. The president's track record as a landlord is now on review with the, with comparisons being drawn between his practices with his tenants, his, then mm-hmm. being sort of uh, directed toward his practices with fellow taxpayers and constituents. So you opposed the Tax Overhaul Act of 2017 What have you in mind after the passage of this massive redistribution of wealth?
2: Well, what's interesting is that my opponent is running to be, quote-unquote, a tax fighter. Uh, However, the tax policies of this administration have hurt most working families in California. And if you want a good example of how this happened, uh, there's a great op-ed written uh, towards the end of last year. It was in the Orange County Register. And uh, it discusses how the, the tax policies in the GOP plan are uniquely unfair. That's the quote, uniquely unfair to California uh, taxpayers. In, in particular, the op-ed discusses the state and local tax deduction being capped at $10,000. Uh, also, you have the mortgage interest deduction being capped. Now, this op-ed that was written in the Orange County Register about how unfair this tax policy is was written by Congressman Darrell Issa back when he was running for reelection, election uh, So it's disingenuous now for uh, my opponent or any of these Republicans to claim that this policy is somehow good uh, for Californians. And the reality is that most people's taxes are going up. Now, if you're lucky enough to be wealthy enough to benefit from this tax uh, plan, uh, I would ask you this. Uh, take a look at the national debt and the huge ballooning deficits that this tax policy uh, has created. Uh, and ask yourself, uh, what will your personal share of the national debt be by virtue of these irresponsible tax cuts? My guess is that the the share of the debt that you will have exceeds whatever tax benefit you may have in the short term. So I am absolutely convinced that we've got to, uh, you know, repeal the salt cap, the the state and local tax deduction being capped at ten thousand. And House Republicans, it actually didn't get all that much attention with everything else going on. House Republicans voted uh, early last week to make that SALT uh, cap at $10,000 permanent. Uh, The tax policies that the the tax bill initially had had only had the SALT uh, cap until 2025. But House Republicans doubled down on that last week and decided to make it permanent. Now, that won't pass the Senate before the election. But you better believe that if Republicans maintain control of the House and the Senate, they are going to make permanent that state and local tax deduction being capped at $10,000. That is a vital deduction taken by a huge chunk of people in our district. These are working families with uh, mortgages, paying a lot in property taxes and state and local taxes, who have always deducted their state and local tax bill from their federal Uh, tax burden. That is a big deal. This is horrible for California working families, and we've got to fight against it.
0: So with that huge deficit opening up with the Tax Overhaul Act, there's eyes, and and everybody saw this coming, uh, eyes on using Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security funds to sort of offset the shortfall of that tax overhaul. What do you propose to do to shore up those programs?
2: Well, you you got it right, where everybody saw this coming, and they were trying to be very uh, coy about this. But then Larry Kudlow, one of the president's economic advisors, kind of spilled the beans and said that, yes, they were looking at – they call them entitlements. I don't call them entitlements. These are earned benefits. Uh, These are programs that have been successful. Millions of Americans rely on them, and we've got to do all we can to protect and strengthen these programs – uh, and what I worry about the most is what I talk to voters in our district as it regards social security. I worry about the all of the other things that generationally we would have done to create wealth and to build wealth uh, they're not happening the way that they used to. I think about how my grandparents built their wealth or my parents even. Uh, many people had pensions, and the pension system has been attacked and undermined by this administration, Wipe by out. Republicans in Congress <laughs> yeah. people would have equity in their home. And now a lot of folks are using the equity in their home, borrowing against it just for basic living expenses or to pay for their kid's college. Uh, so now you've got things like 401ks and IRAs, but only a third of the eligible workforce invests in any 401k or IRA. And then a good chunk of people underfund their retirement accounts. So where, then, do people get the money to retire? And the answer has to be, if that's the case, Social Security has to be there. If they gut Social Security, what's left? We're going to wind up with massive income inequality, which is getting worse, but it's going to become even greater to the point where we're not going to recognize this country. So what I would you know, look to do is roll back some of the irresponsible tax policies of this administration to help shore up Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, And then I would uh, explore every possible option uh, to be fiscally prudent uh, while shoring up those programs and expanding those programs for generations to come.
0: So then on to the Consumer Protection Bureau that's becoming, (laughs) it's getting whittled away. From your vantage point, you witnessed firsthand Countrywide's foreclosure practices through your father's real estate holding, um, and also from some your legal work that you were doing, how do you address the White House, the House of Representatives, whittling down the power of the Consumer Protection Bureau?
2: Well, this is disgraceful that uh, this administration uh, would try to undermine consumer protections against predatory lenders. We've got to do everything we can to ensure uh, that we do not repeat the mistakes of the 2007, 8, and 9 crisis. And I worry that we're heading back there because I see weakening uh, protections. Uh, I just saw the other day the president uh, even made it easier for predatory lenders uh, to uh, victimize uh, veterans and active duty men and women uh, to, to charge them exorbitant interest rates. Uh, when you have a Consumer Financial Protection Bureau that doesn't believe in protecting consumers anymore, you know something has gone horribly awry. And I worry in general about the future uh, full faith and credit of the United States. I worry that we're getting so deeply in debt uh, that, uh, and and if this continues, we're going to have record debt-to-GDP ratios. We're going to have uh, sky-high percentage of of GDP that we're paying to service the debt. This simply cannot continue. And, you know, ultimately what, what got us through the last financial crisis uh, was the full-faith and credit of the united states and if that is no longer there and the next calamity comes whether it be by virtue of another bubble from you know let's say student loans could be the cause or or it could be mortgages again but when that bubble comes if we don't have the full-faith and credit of the united states we're not going to be with, able to withstand it nearly as well and in hindsight electing a person who is the self-professed king of debt uh, to the oval office uh, who bankrupted four casinos? Uh, probably not the best idea. And hopefully our country will make it through uh, what I hope is his one term uh, without a major financial calamity.
0: Well, I, I do recall Kai Rizdal on a, a different radio platform had Bernanke, Paulson, and Geithner on, and uh, they, and uh, and later on Barney Frank. That was uh, all of them involved with the recovery effort on, in the administrative and legislative arenas, and they're not. They're not waxing so positive about what's in place now to to deal with the next recession.
2: Well, I'm deeply concerned, and uh, you know we know that our economy is cyclical. I do think that we're on a sugar high right now. Having a six-year-old and a four-year-old at home, my wife and I know a thing or two about sugar highs, <laughs> and they're they're good. They're good while they last, but uh, inevitably, uh, what what uh, we're seeing with regard to the market. Uh, you know, there there are some people that are doing extraordinarily well, there's no question. Uh, but by and large, a lot of people that are just, uh, you know, working and, and not seeing their wages increase uh, to the extent that they should, wages are actually going down when adjusted for inflation right now. And that's, uh, that's something that's not being discussed. Uh, you know, corporate profits are up and the stock market is up. Uh, but a lot of these corporations are paying massive bonuses to their top executives and uh, also doing stock buybacks. And stock buybacks are great for some, for a narrow a narrow subset of your audience. But for most, they're not seeing that, that benefit. They're not seeing that windfall. And I, I believe that if you grow the economy from the middle out, uh, when you make sure that the middle class is doing well, the wealthy do it incredibly well when the middle class do well historically. Uh, There's somehow a uh, a false narrative out there that it's a zero-sum game. Right. But historically, if the middle class does well, that's the best way to grow the economy for the long term. And there's so many uh, things that this administration is doing to make it tougher just to get by. That basic bargain that if you work hard uh, 40 hours a week, that you're going to be able to retire with dignity, that you're going to be able to afford to send your kids to college, uh, to have enough to buy a home, Uh, You know, I I worry that we're losing that basic bargain.
0: I'm glad that you bring up the zero-sum game because it's so often ignored, and I think uh, the Democratic Party did not not step out of that frame. The Republicans owned it for the entire 2016 campaign season. So I'm going to keep returning to that. You brought it up on your own, and that, you know— props to you for that. So given your focus on environmental and energy regulatory compliance and government affairs and innovation, tell us about your best solutions in infrastructure, whether you are considering closed-loop economy solutions.
2: Well, I think, you know, we need a federal infrastructure program uh, to, in in part, to reduce the burden on state and local government. Uh, Because as we know, the, the need for California to Uh, repair the $150 billion backlog in needed infrastructure, our roads, our bridges. Uh, That has become a point of great controversy, uh, with some uh, trying to use it as a wedge issue on the other side with uh, the whole Prop 6 uh, fiasco. Uh, But we need safe roads and bridges. Uh, Just the same, if the federal government were actually to do its job with regard to infrastructure, uh, we would need about a 1.3 trillion dollar package, is what most uh, assessments uh, uh, say. 1.2, 1.3 trillion. We would have the money to do it, but for the 1.9 trillion that we just spent on an irresponsible tax cut, uh, which 81 uh, percent of that tax cut goes to the top one percent of taxpayers, uh, of income earners, and so I just think we need to get back to priorities. We've got to uh, put people to work with those great infrastructure jobs. I want to see the modernization of the electric grid as well. I think there ought to be an opportunity to integrate the clean energy technologies of the future into great infrastructure spending and, and projects. And, uh, you know, I think that we can get it done. That, that shouldn't be a partisan thing either. Uh, ultimately, you know, this administration talked about infrastructure during the campaign. I figured, if nothing else, the great builder Trump, Turned out not to be such a great builder, uh, but I figured if nothing else, he, he might get some infrastructure built. Uh, and then for weeks on end, every week was infrastructure week, if you remember. Right. And we've built nothing. We've got nothing done. So I would actually hope to serve on the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee if I get uh, elected and, you know, I don't get to call my shots of where I would be. Uh, you know, put on different committees. But that's one where I think I could make a meaningful difference and a meaningful impact on a nationwide infrastructure package.
0: Well, as our time draws down, I would love to wedge in more of a a tension to the closed-loop economy because I know so many externalities don't get addressed in manufacturing and consumption and that kind of a thing. But we'll move – That's true. We'll draw it down all the way here with – Where, folks, how they can follow you, if you have any idea what events are coming up in the, let's say, the Irvine swath, uh, anywhere down in the remaining part of the campaign season.
2: Well, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to speak with you. Uh, our district uh, in South Orange County includes all of Dana Point, San Juan Capistrano, San Clemente, and Ladera Ranch and Rancho Mission Viejo. So uh, we do need help. Uh, We've only got 28 days to go. We've got an office in San Clemente right over by San Clemente City Hall. If any of your listeners are interested in helping out and uh, volunteering, I encourage them to go to our website at MikeLevin.org. That's M-I-K-E-L-E-V-I-N.org. You, of course, can follow us on Twitter at MikeLevinCA. And uh, I'd be very grateful. You know, everybody uh, listening to this, I hope, We'll wake up the morning after the election on November 7th knowing that they did everything they could to spread the word and get out the vote. Uh, and we do need your help in our district. It's a key race. Uh, we cannot win the House, just to be very uh, frank about it. We cannot win the House unless we win our district. And there are many competitive races all throughout Orange County. It's particularly exciting for me because I used to be the executive director of the Democratic Party in Orange County said, yes. quite, quite, quite a number of years ago. And uh, now to see Orange County as the center of our ability to take back the House uh, really is exciting. And I know, uh, you know, for all your listeners out there, uh, if you can knock on doors, if you can make calls, if you can tell your friends and neighbors and coworkers and family members, this is a really critical election for the future direction of our country. And we're going to do all we can as Democrats for the people, lowering health care costs, prescription drug prices, helping to to grow the economy by rebuilding America and then ultimately, you know, cleaning up the corruption uh, that we see to really make Washington work for the people again. So I'd be grateful to have uh, the support of everyone listening.
0: Well, thank you, Mike Levin, for taking the time to be on our show today.
2: Thank you so much. Okay,
0: My guest was Mike Levin, congressional candidate in California's 49th district, spanning Southern California, Southern Orange County, and Northern San Diego County. Dana Point, De La Jolla, as you just mentioned. So that's my wrap for today. Next week, I'm going to have on city council candidate Lauren Johnson. Then in this segment, the following one, we'll have Rebecca Newman of the League of Women Voters. We'll race through an analysis of all the propositions on the California general election ballot. Register to vote, pledge to vote, check your registration again, find the polls, get the right ID, make a plan for Election Day, November 6th, or get an absentee ballot. Repeat steps with 10 of your friends. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening.